history of personal computing. Discover the incredible power of the Atari 520ST. With the new Atari Discovery Pack, you can learn computer programming. You can discover talents you never knew you had. And create and play games as exciting as in any arcade. The new Atari Discovery Pack for less than £300. Good day, Retro Computing Pals, and we're back with another exciting episode of the History of Personal Computing eBay Edition podcast. Instead of being like tour guides at a museum, Jeff and I are just two collectors and we're looking at things from that vantage point. Every two weeks we get together and we take an informal look at personal computing history through the lens of eBay auctions. On today's show, we have another special guest, Chuck Hunnefield. And Chuck, did I just say it wrong or right? Yeah, Honeyfield works. That's fine. That well, works. Because I can read. How do you say it right? Honeyfield. Honeyfield. Yes, uh, I right. can spelled. Okay. Yep. Sorry. <laughs> so here we go again. So quiet on the set. <laughs> Chuck Honeyfield. Oh. <laughs> yes, I was going to say mm-hmm. Honeyfield and Salzman. We both got that German thing going on. So uh, you know, it's. It, I guess it's the spelling. It's an American spelling of a German yeah. name. And. Uh, I don't think there's a right way to say it, to be honest with you. I have always said Honeyfield. The Honeyfields always say Honeyfields. But, you know, hey, nothing personal. (laughs) Chuck Honeyfield. There you go. Jeff, why don't you do the honors of introducing Chuck? Well, okay. Um, I I actually met Chuck 25 years ago, if I recall. Wow. Uh, A a mall was opening up in the York, uh, Pennsylvania area, and he was the – the manager of the electronics boutique that was opening up in that mall. Oh, and I was okay. working at the at a end store that called Boscovs selling computers in their computer department when one of their one of electronic boutique's minions management minions came in and I sold them a computer so to speak, but I didn't really sell it to them. They were actually interviewing me live and uh, gave me a card say, "Hey, we want you to work down here." So I ended up getting hired uh as a manager MT at Electronics Boutique, and that's where I first met Chuck. Um, and since then, we, we discovered interests like, uh, well, Commodore computers and media computers. I know there are some bad words to the people, you know, some of the people listening right now, especially those listening for the Atari show. Um, but Better yeah, not be. And, We're all friends here. And he, um, yeah, I've known him since then. I mean, off and on. Uh, we, we had our own different life paths to go through, but we're only a county away from each other and just okay. kept in touch. And uh, I know um, I, I recommended him for this show because he did work with Atari ST stuff being a musician. Okay. Um, and I'm getting that all right, Chuck, right? It's not yeah, just yeah, 25 absolutely. years of mixed memories that are. <laughs> no, no, okay. I forgot you worked at Boscoff. So that, just, <laughs> that just kills me. Yeah, we used to do that. We used to do that with Radio Shack, too. <laughs> <laughs> now, Chuck, did Save you. people from their room. <laughs> did yeah. you sell Atari? Uh, did you sell Atari, though, too? Or just you use them? I actually worked with a dealer who was up in Reading, PA, mm-hmm. um, who was an Atari dealer. And by the way, he was an Atari dealer from back in the 2600 days. Wow. 
Um, it, this guy's story is even better. He was a he was one of these ex hippies that did a lot of macrame, and he had a macrame shop. So he was. And if you don't know what macrame is, it's yeah. basically <laughs> the, uh, it, it's it's. Wait, I know that you hung them. You hung them from your rearview mirror in your VW <laughs> minibus. You, you can, <laughs> hung plants you, in them too. You, you basically made. Uh, uh, Strands of, of, of natural fiber, and you made it into various objects. And yes, usually it, it had to do with, uh, uh, you know, plot holders and that sort of thing. And he had a whole shop full of this. And of course, he was getting no business. And one of his, one of, one of his few customers brought in an Atari 2600. And they played the crap out of it. And he said, you know, I wonder if we could actually sell these things here. And at the time, Atari was signing up anybody, hmm. and uh, he just happened to get in under the wire, and he became an Atari dealer. <laughs> That's great. So, yeah, it was a great story, and the guy was really, really into video games and into computers. And uh, my first ST, uh, I bought from him, and when you bought an Atari ST at the time, it, it, it had no ROM. The ROMs weren't done yet. So all it had was a bootstrap. You'd have to actually load the ROM through the floppy drive, which, by the way, at the time was external. Mm. And uh, that was just uh, <laughs> a process. But the Amiga was the same way. The Amiga yeah, was, I, I was going to say it was, wasn't it? The original Amiga <laughs> 1000 was the same way. That's correct. Huh. And uh, so you had to sit and load the, the TOS operating system, which was essentially GEM. Uh, well, there's this TOS that runs in the background, and then there's Gem that runs on top. And uh, it took us a while to really figure out the system to to really maximize how we were going to uh, how I was going to help him sell this thing. And I worked part time for him for a while. Um, and we used to go to trade shows together and stuff, and it was just a lot of fun. And he, um, I first got into real programming on the Atari ST. Uh, the ST was more affordable than the Amiga at the time, and it was also marginally marginally more stable than the Amiga. I'm not going to say greatly more stable, but at the time, yeah, I would say it was more stable than the Amiga was when it first came out for about the first year, year and a half, um, maybe, maybe two years, uh, much more stable than the Amiga had been. Hmm. Um, that the Amiga, the Amiga, in its defense, uh, had a sudden operating system change when they couldn't come to an agreement about their uh, final, uh, the whole back end of the operating system, and they had to write something pretty much from scratch and use, uh, uh, you know. Me- meanwhile, it's uh, Atari had the advantage of being able to design a machine and an operating system at the same time. And when they released, Toss wasn't finished, but it was close. Hmm. Okay. Well, it's it's great to have you on the show. I'm hey. sure you have a lot of great great feedback and things to add to the discussion. Um. But so one things we we start off the show with, if we have any, we'll call it news items. You know, some this is a more recent addition to the show, just some discussion items. So so Jeff, why don't you start? Okay. What's what's new with you? What's new with me? Um, <laughs> What's new and interesting? Time, I, I have a couple systems um, that use the old MFM-style hard drives, you know, ones with the two cables. And I have a, a TRS-80 Model 4 with the external hard drive, and I have um, 
a K Pro 10. Yeah, and if I can interrupt, actually, yes. weren't all hard drives technically MFM based? Like the one that was in the Lisa profile, pretty much any yeah. early they 80s hard drive. RLL Is that right? Too. They had RLL, which actually used a separate controller card, but that's okay. because all the, all the technology was on the controller card. The drive was just had enough electronics to move things around. Inside. Oh, that's right. And then you had the controller electronics yep. and stuff. Okay. Go ahead. Sorry. So, you know, you have all these replacements for, uh, drive replacements that are compact flash or SD card based for all these other systems. But for some reason, nobody really came up with something to replace an MFM hard drive or at least to better interface with a system that has a dying MFM hard drive because the ones I have now will start making whining noises if they're on for a great length of time. So I'm sort of crossing my fingers and also being careful. I want to use the stuff, but I I don't want them to go bad. Um, but it's, I think it's down to as long as it stays, you keep it running, it stays running. It's one of those things, no matter how much noise it makes. But anyway, so I was looking around, and I've been doing this every four or five months. I just looked to see if somebody came up with something. And apparently, there was something out there for an MFM drive emulator. And I found it on the PDP8online.com website. We'll, we'll provide links That's interesting. in the show notes. It, takes a little bit reading through. Uh, the guy has a picture of the board, and uh, when you look at it, it looks like the tail end of an MFM drive huh. um, or no, an MFM controller card. I forget. Either way, he, he has stuff running. He sold a bunch of boards. I tried to contact him to get a bare production board, and he's out of them already. But it requires additional components to work. Um, as I mentioned, MFM required the controller to have all the real um, hardware on it, the, the, the programming, the firmware. Um, so this board is designed to work with a microprocessor board called the BeagleBone. Um, and they're not exactly cheap, but they're not very expensive either. Um, he was pricing them with an assembled board and the BeagleBone. Oh, $125, right? Well, without the BeagleBone, assembled board is 125 But with the BeagleBone, it's 175 Okay. Um, but I have a BeagleBone Black, which is just has different speeds capabilities in it, but it's pin compatible. So I wanted to get the board because I can get the chips and stuff and solder my own stuff on there. The board was 15 bucks, but he's out of them. Hopefully he's going to get some more. But now I'm like, once again, I have uh, my, my appetite's been wet and I'm <laughs> hoping he comes up with other boards. I've been looking through his stuff. I think he has schematics and stuff. I may be able to make my own board if I want to, but there could be looking at the picture of it. There could be a lot of detail. There's surface mount stuff. So yeah, why does it? I haven't seen a, a modern type of board like this. You know, even that's doing retro it requires stuff. A lot of work. Yeah, well, that has these big capacitors on it, like that. Well, those capacitors are for. It's got five uh, big, tall, you know, X does, capacitors. When the, power, when the power drops from the uh, system, yeah, those capacitors stay charged just long enough for the hard drive to park the heads. And I guess you have to have. They have to be those kind. For that to work, huh? They could be bigger, yeah. Um, the more you have, the better. But that's what it's for because the heads don't normally park on an MFM drive unless you have a program that does it. Like on the K-Pro, there's, I think, a program called Safety. You type Safety and it parks the heads mm-hmm. tells you you can turn off the computer. If you don't do that and you turn it off and pick it up and move the thing, you run the risk of the heads it, banging against are, the Are those style of capacitors are um – I mean, would, would, would they be classified as sort of like antiquated style capacitors? Or? No, you can still buy them. Well, I know you can, but are they like sort of like still – like are there oh, more modern mean, versions of them, but they, they the wouldn't do the job? Them? Yeah. Um, 
they're not really used like that too much in modern stuff, right? Well, capacitors do store energy, but a lot of capacitors like that, uh, probably a very specific purpose well, like this, well, just to keep power going for a while. If I can add, one thing yeah. you have to remember is that the power curve in today's electronics is not near what it was 30 years ago. Mm-hmm. I mean, 30 years ago, you had to have a huge power supply. Before switching power supplies, right? you had a huge, huge, huge power supply. Oh, yeah. Um, and, and any interruption of power, like today, any interruption of power, you, you're, you're, it's bad. But the, the problem was is that the electronics itself um, were using a lot more power uh, for their chips. And so, so any interruption of power um, was a bigger deal back then. And you had to have that kind of uh, almost a battery backup okay. in the form of capacitors. Today, uh, <laughs> our electronics use, uh, you know, I don't even want to speculate, but it's almost, I forget the name of the law. It's like Moore's Law. There's a power consumption law that's also out there that demonstrates uh, an almost <laughs> unbelievable curve from, say, the late 70s, early 80s to now. Um, it's unbelievable how much less right. electricity these things use. Well, I've owned or, or else we wouldn't have <clears throat> cell phones. I mean, you look at a cell phone, and you know, my cell phone, for instance, a Galaxy S5. I've got eight processors in there, and how many gigs of RAM, and a huge screen. I mean, those things were, weren't possible just from the standpoint of the amount of power that you would have needed back in the 80s to do something like that, and even if you had the technology. I've owned um, through the years. So, Chuck, you know, I've, I've collected old computers for quite a long time. I don't really own a lot of them anymore, but more so early on in the early 90s when I started collecting. And I could pick up these things really cheap and free in a lot of cases. But I've had a number of, you know, S100 computers. Yes. And you know, you know, so I, you know, I'm not really an engineer to know a lot of the technicalities that deep on it. But yeah, so I've seen some gigantic power supplies, uh-huh. and those boys, you know, big old cans, capacitors. Yeah, well, that's because they weren't uh, switching power supplies. They had yeah. a lot of ripple in their voltage, so the yeah. capacitors. Well, they would take up like a all. third of the case, the power yes, supply, and you, you know, because they had to ripple, and, and it would take a few moments for that power supply or that capacitor to charge and then you'd have if you measured the output on the oscilloscope you'd have a flat dc uh, level whereas if you didn't have big capacitors you would see wavy ripples and that's not good for the electronics either i had a old insonic this takes you back mm-hmm. insonic esq1 keyboard uh whose real-time card or real-time battery had failed and back then they didn't think about batteries you usually had to solder another one in there and I was just blown away by the fact that when I finally opened the thing up, almost a third of the case was power supply. Mm. Just unbelievable. Yeah. That explained the weight. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's so that's really um, that's very interesting, though, about the MFM hard drive. That's definitely something that's needed. Yeah, I'm hoping something does come out. Now, there is something similar for the TRS-80. It's called the uh, FRED, F-R-E-H-D. That's developed. It's a two hundred dollar thing that emulates the hard drive system for TRS eighty, and I don't know if it's a direct MFM style uh, replacement. I don't think it is because I saw one in action at the VCF last year in New Jersey. But it for TRS eighty, it emulates everything from the connector on the TRS eighty out. So anything that's inside the external hard drive box on a, a TRS eighty. Um, was all emulated by that Fred, so it's sort of halfway there, mm-hmm. uh, but it, it it just emulated a little further back. I'm hoping to find something that emulates the controller, and or well, actually doesn't have to emulate the controller; it has to emulate the drive, to so the controller thinks it's talking to 
basically a, a dumb hard drive, you know, an MFM drive. And that's hard to find. So hopefully people can follow this link then and, and uh, maybe knock on the uh, developer's door so you can't convince them to make a few more boards. And um, I think we've talked about – and also so leading up to um, – I have two, two short, quick items to talk about. But leading up to my first one, and, and in reference to this too, Jeff, we've talked about, I think, doing a special show, haven't we, about um, – like oh, maybe where we cover these type of things, we, we cover like uh, that'd probably be good. Two different show ideas, like one on nothing but emulation and reproductions and stuff, modifying uh, your old uh... yeah, and then also maybe on these all these different add-on boards to that like SD card, you know, hard drive uh, replacements and that sort of thing would be yeah, really so great. Keep these things living, and, and there's got to be resources out there for that. Yeah, so we should plan that. So, so moving right into that then. So I want to mention uh, an article that came out by our friend Adam Rosen, who's on the show last time. He's, he has the Vintage uh, Mac Museum out of the Boston area. And so he's on our Macintosh show. So he wrote an article called Remembering the Lisa with a Pixel. And that's uh, capital P, little I, capital XL. So in other words, that's like uh, Raspberry Pi, you know, Macintosh XL. So um, yeah, the All Macintosh right. XL was the last name of the Lisa. It was rebranded near the end of its life with Apple. And, uh, and I have one of these little guys, and it's really cool. So um, I won't say a whole lot. Just go and read the article. But basically, it's a it's a 3D-printed little miniature Lisa case that you can buy. And you can get a Lisa 1 style or Lisa 2. Um, if you're not – if everyone's not aware, the Lisa 1 actually had two – the case looked a little bit different because it had what were called Twiggy drives, five-and-a-quarter style drives. Um, and then the Lisa 2 debuted with the Mac in 84, so it had a three-and-a-half-inch Sony that screen resolution was at like 320 by 240. It's I think neat. so. It's, yeah, so it's really it's neat. cool. It also runs um uh, you can run mini VMAC so where you could be running like the Mac interface on it or Lisa M capital E and then M for emulated and uh but it doesn't like he's he's talks about in the article it doesn't scale properly. So in a way it's not totally useful or usable, you know, on the little mini Lisa, but just, it's just, you know, obviously a really cool thing. Oh, if it you, uh, it's, it's neat how it looks. I mean, that, that's a nice little tchotchke for the desk. Yeah. And it's, it's a really good job. And, um, so check that out. And, uh, you know, I have one I've owned, I want to say, you know, so I have a, I have a soft heart for the Apple Lisa, my favorite computers. And, and my first Mac was a Lisa and I've owned probably four, I think four over the years. And unfortunately different times I've had to sell them <laughs> came down to financial constraints and stuff. And, um, you know, they're valuable. They're, they're, they're really going up in value now. So I don't own one anymore, but at least I have a little miniature one. So check that out, link in the show notes. And then my other one I want to mention, apparently this has been out for a while, I guess at least eight or nine months or something, but it's the documentary called Atari game over. And I watched it on Netflix uh, fairly recently. Have you two seen this? Yes, it's great. I have not. Okay, well, uh, again, if you're on Netflix, go watch it. I just checked for the show. It's still there. Um, there's also a link in the show notes where it's up on Vimeo. And uh, So, what do you think, Chuck? Yeah, I, I enjoyed it. I think I think that if you are a, um, a person that is not necessarily into all the nuts and bolts and details of what mm-hmm. happened, yeah. um, it's a good overview. Yeah, but if you are, man, I would highly recommend reading uh, one of two books. Two of my favorites, um, uh, and the Atari book—they've uh, got a, a couple more, I guess, coming out. But the the first one is called "Business is Fun," and it's it's just a tome. It's huge, mm-hmm. and they have interviews with almost everybody that was involved with Atari. 
Um, and it's very, very, very detailed, but, and probably more than maybe people who listen to this podcast might be interested. Um, but game over was more of kind of, you know, this is kind of what happened, you know, without getting too technical or too personal business is fun gets personal. I mean, you start people talk crap about each other and, and you really get an idea of just the chaos that was Atari. And I think Atari game over, it did a nice job of, um, being, uh, but, you know, better suited, let's say, for a general audience. Even where, even-handed also. Yeah, yeah where it I can think, be... I think they did their best. And um, and just real quick, so obviously it tells the story of Atari, primarily the um, early days and, you know, the video game part of it, of right. their, their years. And But it specifically kind of hones in on the whole um, searching for, which is really interesting, and digging up the, the buried... Uh, ET game cartridges, which yeah. you know, turns out it was true they were buried. So that so it's really good. I mean, it's I, I liked it a lot. I may watch it again sometime. I think it maybe got a little slow in some parts. So again, if you weren't like a huge, really into it, you you know, might might get a little right. slow in a couple of parts. But I know I don't think it's more than an hour. But it, it might have been better if it was written or directed by Quentin Tarantino. Yeah, it needed more explosions. Explosions. <laughs> <laughs> it's in my Netflix list now. So and and uh, what is it? Lens flares. <laughs> But <laughs> it really, really like plussed it up, but, but really good. And Chuck, I, I guess I didn't mention when you're talking about it, but see, I love documentaries and to me, so do I. even, you know, a well-made documentary, even if you're not into it per se, you know, I guess you have to be into documentaries though, but I can watch a documentary about this, something I, maybe I wouldn't even care about, but you know, I find it fascinating all the stories and the people and just interviews and stuff. You know, it can, I think it can make a topic way more interesting. Yeah, I think, right, I think so. for computer history, when I read it, what I read is any one of these companies, particularly in the late 70s, early 80s, when things were wide open, any one of them could have been number one. Any one of them could have ruled the roost for years and years and years had they done one thing. Like had Radio Shack's TRS-80 ran CPM mm-hmm. instead of purposely disabling it so that it couldn't. Yeah, uh, Had they done that? Who knows what might have happened? We'd all be running CPM right now. Um, <clears throat> you know, Atari had plenty of opportunities to make their computers uh, functional and make and, and target the audience properly, but they were so obsessed with making sure these things would be used as in business or used for you know home finance um, that they didn't even release the specs of the machine for three years. Hmm. I mean, there's. Th- I mean, the same thing with the, the TI, the TI nine nine four A. Same situation there. Let's not release any information, and let's be the only ones who release software for our computer. Yeah, on paper that looked good. We look at it now and think, God, you guys were insane. Um, but we, no one knew back then what it meant, what third, the importance of third party software, for instance. So, you know, you can almost look at any of these companies and go, you know, K-Pro even. I mean, it's so many opportunities for each of these to, that they could have they could have ruled. They could have been the biggest computer, you know, distributors or the, the, the standard even. Yeah. Um, but, but and that's what I love about watching these documentaries is or reading these books is you realize the mistakes that they made and that seems so obvious today. But back then, they just didn't know. They didn't have these. It was a new business. And, you know, and the thing about, again, about the documentary, and, you know, I have a, and I have a great example. So I was not ever particularly, and Jeff, you'll, you'll appreciate this and, and maybe you will too, Chuck, but I, you know, I was a Mac user and I never really was involved in BBSs and, um, I really enjoy the BBS documentary. And so, and, and so this is stuff that I can't directly relate to, 
right? But I, I enjoy watch, watching it a number of times because of the it's, – it's about the people and the stories and all that. And that's what I really love about history when it really right. comes down to it. I love the also, machines. It breaks up the myths and stuff that – you know, Yeah. And, uh, you, don't, uh, you don't realize the personal foibles of people, mm-hmm. how that determines – the technology, how that determines the the direction of a company, just because whoever was the CEO, whoever was the driving force in that company, uh, had a personal animus or had some sort of issues, or you know, it, it, so much of that went on. And again, that leads back to why sometimes they made poor decisions, yeah. because sometimes people would just, you know, Atari uh, Atari was purchased, or the computer division was purchased by. Uh, Jack Tramiel, who clearly had it out for his old company. Spoiler! Spoiler alert! (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) Go ahead, I'm sorry. But but, but that's just one of the better examples because, you know, the guy, he sacrificed his whole personal fortune Mm -hmm. um, basically to take revenge on a company that that, he felt wronged him. When, again, even with the ST, there was a chance he could have done something really special with that. But I often think that there really wasn't enough room for both, uh, the Atari ST and the Amiga. We can get into that later. But yeah. the thing about it is is I think you know, they were both feeding on the same very small, specific market. And there just wasn't enough to go around. But I, I do, and I, I, I agree with you, but I also think... Yeah, I just think either one could, if they'd just done a much better job of um, of marketing themselves and sort of you know getting the right message out, and uh, I don't know with their user community and everything else, I think they could have done far better. Either, Perhaps, either one, but you know what the problem between Atari, the one thing they had in common, Commodore and Atari, uh, Jack Tremel. Diff- <laughs> well, yeah. trust, trust, no, but I mean even even post Tremel at, at Commodore were trust issues. Uh-oh. Um, you couldn't trust Commodore. You couldn't trust Atari to do what they said they were going to do. Oh, right. Especially because of Tremiel. But then later on with Commodore, it was just incompetence. And if you saw the early ads for the Amiga, you're like, what are they even selling? Uh, it, it was just, you know, the ineptness was just amazing. And it clearly, Commodore's head wasn't in the game. And Tramiel was looking for revenge, and so you got, and and Tramiel's uh, his modus operandi was to not pay his vendors um, for as long as he could. Uh, he loved legal fights. He loved to be able to just you know string somebody along. That's what happened to Epics. You know that's how they ended up with the Epics game machine and remarketed under Atari because of an agreement they had. And Epics couldn't finish things on time, and so Atari owned them. And that's the kind of thing that he would do. He had no mercy. No mercy. Business is war, he'd say. So, Chuck, it's um, you go ahead with your well, – moving right along then. So go ahead with sure. your, your um, little news item. Uh, this is great. Now, I, one of the things back in 1980 when I first – I saw my very first Atari 800 – I think it was in 79, late 79, uh, at a dealership in Long Island. And I was just like, oh. But one of the things that they just demonstrated there was Star Raiders. Star Raiders was really the first true 3D space game. Now, I'm in the science fiction and space like all the good geeks should be. Um, (laughs) And 
this was just well ahead of its time. There wasn't another 3D space game like this for years and years afterwards. And the guy who did it was uh, a pseudo-genius. The guy, he might even be a genius. The guy who did it uh, managed to take 3D algorithms and run them in real time on an 8-bit processor. That's a really, really difficult thing to do. And even on the Atari 2600, too. Well, especially on a 2600, you had those memory limitations. But uh, it, it, the thing about it is, is that everyone wanted a sequel. Mm. Everybody would love to see, you know, a real, true Star Raider sequel. Now, what ended up happening was Atari got Atari went on a binge. They were buying rights to things like ET. Um, they bought rights to uh, the Last Starfighter to develop video games, and they had a game that was in development as Last Starfighter. Some of those people out there that may have obtained a copy of this game may have found it as Lost Starfighter. Um, what ended up happening between the chaos of Tremiel's buying and everything else, they ended up releasing the game as Star Raiders 2. But it is not the true successor to Star Raiders 2. It was designed to be Last Starfighter. And they lost the rights to it because they didn't have the money to pay for it, and they just movie wasn't doing that hot and they figured well we're going to drop this and everybody wants a sequel so we'll just release this as a sequel meanwhile the whole time and this just came out in december no one had any clue that this was going on there was a guy working for atari who was producing a true star raiders 2 sequel complete with planetary orbits uh being able to fly over planetary surfaces uh, just increased combat, uh, um, true 3D objects in the combat as opposed to just sprites. So when you fly up to a space station, it's actually made of a, a vector graphic. Just amazing. Um, the guy never finished the game. Uh, and he is trying, Jeff, you'll be interested in this. He's trying to get the code off an old MFM drive. <laughs> Good luck to him. <laughs> yeah. Um, which is how he got at least the binary off of it. He's working with somebody. You might want to contact this guy, Jeff, by the way, um, because I think he was working with somebody having the same issue as you, trying to do MFM emulation and, and be able to pull things off. Um, but at any rate, he, uh, uh, the, uh, the game is amazing. I mean, I ran an emulator, of course, and I, I, it's, the AI is not done. There's a few things that aren't done, but it is playable. And it's just amazing that after all these years, this finally comes out. Well, I see. Um, <clears throat> so I was looking it up and I looked up Star Raiders and then, you know, Wikipedia, source of all knowledge. <laughs> and then <laughs> looking up Star Raiders too. You know, and it says that the original Star Raiders was basically based on the earlier Star Trek game. That's you know, true. From mini computers and all that. Uh, and then, you know, a lot of what you're saying about it, the Star Raiders too. And then it mentions here. So, and I put a link in the show notes for, um, Okay, so here's the original Star Raiders. Where did I say? Oh, original Star Raiders 2. In 2015, Kevin Savitz, host of the Antic Podcast, was contacted by former Atari programmer Eric Wilmunder. Wilmunder mentioned that he had been working on a true sequel to Star Raiders, also known as Star Raiders 2, and that he had joined Atari after working at Epics. And, and I won't read the whole thing, but it goes on to talk about a lot of that stuff. So, 
it's just it's just it blows me away that it's been 30 years and and here we find out that the game is know. in an untuned state but functionally complete and completely yes. playable yeah that's cool yeah, that's really interesting and, uh, the screenshot here i guess that's of the one that was released though it looks pretty neat but it was it was an amazing thing for its day um when you would see this run on a computer in fact if i remember correctly it was a there was a, a, a games magazine back then. It was Electronic Games or something like that. Uh, Cats used to edit it, and it this they had a they they had kind of a top ten of software for each platform that they would publish every. And right up until 1983, that was always on the top ten for Atari. I mean, it was it was there was no other game. People would buy the computer just to play that game. It was one of those killer apps that you had to have if you were, especially if you were a gamer. And especially if you liked space games, there, there just wasn't anything else out there. Well, very, very interesting. So we're about halfway through the show. We're going to move along then into the guts of uh, our eBay auctions and so on. Um, so just to talk a little bit more about um, about today's show, we're, we're continuing our coverage of the 32-bit GUI computers. So we've covered the Apple Lisa and we've covered the Macintosh. And now we move on to a more obscure candidate, Jeff's words. <laughs> yeah. The Atari ST yeah. line. <laughs> I think, I guess fans wouldn't consider it obscure. So taking a little bit from Wikipedia, the, At- the Atari ST is a line of home computers from Atari Corporation and the successor to the Atari 8-bit family. The first ST model, the 520 ST, was released in June 1985. ST officially stands for 1632 which referred to the Motorola 68000's 16-bit external bus and 32-bit internals, which, of course, the same processor there was used in the Apple Lisa. It was used in the Apple Macintosh. And next show, we'll be talking about the Amiga used there as well, probably some other machines. I think it was used in all the successors to the ST line, I believe, right, from 1040 to Falcon and everything. So um, the Atari ST is the first personal computer to come with a bitmapped color GUI using a version of Digital Research's Gem released in February 1985. When I first read that, I was going, oh, wait, no, it's the next one I read. So, yeah, I think that's definitely true because the Mac operating system – well, I'm not getting ahead of myself. So the Macintosh didn't release a color machine to the Macintosh 2 in 87 or late 86, one of the two. Right. But this line from Wikipedia kind of bothers me. The 1040 ST, released in 1986, is the first personal computer to ship with a megabyte of RAM in the base configuration, and also the first with a cost per kilobyte of less than $1 uh, cost per kilobyte in U.S. dollars. But, um, you know, the Mac Plus was released in 1986, too. So I'm not sure. I guess I guess I didn't look it up, but maybe the 1040 ST came out before the Mac Plus. So no big deal. But um, I, I don't know about that. I, I don't know either way. But yeah. I do know that the pricing was just uh, – I'll be very honest with you. When I was in high school, my senior year, that would be 1984, uh, the uh, the Mac came out, and there was a computer show in town, and I got to see – this was when I was in Durango, Colorado, so – I finally got to see one of these things, and I thought, "Oh, this is just awesome!" I I fell in love with it, and then I looked at the price, and that turned into total frustration and anger. You don't realize what twenty five hundred dollars is yeah. uh, in oh, nineteen eighty four dollars, and it's close to five thousand five hundred and fifty dollars now. It's that much difference, and so. You know, I, 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 that just turned me against Apple for years because it just frustrated me. Mm-hmm. And when the ST was released, 
uh, when we first got wind of it and we, we were waiting for it, I, I was so excited about this because here was a machine that I could absolutely afford. It was under $1,000 with a monitor, uh, which you needed at the time. The 520 did not have uh, an RF modulator yet. Um, the later models did, so you could hook it up to a TV. Um, so you had to have a monitor originally. Um, but but I think I think I paid like seven hundred dollars for for the five twenty and a monitor, um, and here I had a GUI operating system with color, uh, and for a lot less than I could have bought a Mac for. Yeah, uh, that was just amazing. So one other little snippet I I took out of uh, Wikipedia is this quote: "Due to its similarities to the original Macintosh and Jack Tremell's role in its development, it was quickly nicknamed the Jackintosh." <laughs> so that was a 520 ST. You know, if you if you really want to talk about true successors to something like the Commodore 64, mm-hmm. that would be this machine. Yeah, because it was the next generation. It really was, and it was built off of fairly much off-the-shelf parts. I mean, if you look at an Atari, um, the Atari had some off-the-shelf parts, but it had some very specific graphics and sound chips that were custom-designed uh, by J Minor. J Minor went on to design the Amiga's graphics and sound, or their graphics mainly, um, and it was all custom chips that made the magic happen. And what they had done with the ST is they basically said, "We need to build a machine in six months. You know, we need to be able to show something in six months." And this was typical of Jack Tremail's style of management. He would just come up with an idea, and you were going to execute. And uh, so, to be honest, looking at the guts of the ST. There's nothing really super special. It's nothing, let's put it this way, it's nothing that Apple couldn't have done like the year before if they had wanted to. Um, it's just that it, it was a, a design philosophy of Jack Tremiel, which was, you know, let's just get this thing out there. Compatibility, future compatibility really didn't concern him. Mm-hmm. It was selling boxes. And you can tell when you take a look at some of his his past machines. You know, there was no there was no compatibility, for instance, between the Vic Twenty and the Commodore sixty four. You know, should there have been? Yeah, probably. They use the same processor. You would think they used uh, they used a lot of the same parts. You would think that there would have been, but I mean, it's good reasons why they didn't do it. But my point is, is that um, this was designed to be an inexpensive Macintosh killer. More importantly, an inexpensive Amiga killer. Yeah. Hi, this is Adam Rosen from the Vintage Mac Museum, and you're listening to the History of Personal Computing Podcast. Uh, my first auction, while well, everybody follows along here. Um, you see, I, I put my list in early. I I picked stuff that... Uh, oh, where'd it go? I picked stuff that I think at the time was active, <laughs> but I knew it would be uh, done by the time. Yeah. Came to the show, so oh, that's a great, uh, that's a good one. This is an Atari ST computer package, as it's worded. It's a working Stacy portable computer. I knew nothing of the Stacy, uh, but my understanding is, and you can tell by the pictures, that it is a basically an ST laptop. Mm-hmm. Um, Chuck, did you ever see anything like this? Yes, I did. I saw the Stacy at the dealership that uh, I was talking about in Reading. So you, um, you were the you were lucky enough to actually touch one. Oh um, yeah, we we used one. We had one there in the store for a while. We couldn't sell it actually, <laughs> so it sat in there for at least six months. Well, it oh, wasn't. Bought it. It wasn't cheap, right? Okay. No, it was it was expensive. I mean, I mean as things 
uh, let's put it this way: it was its price was comparable to other laptops of the day. Well, this one, <laughs> one is three hundred dollars, which so it's pretty cheap. But for me, shipping would have been nine hundred. That's that's what it says to me. That's crazy. That's insane. It's coming from Canada. Maybe. Yeah, but still, that's ridiculous. Yeah, you know the guy padded it about five or six hundred dollars. I can't believe anyone would buy it for that. Well, oh, maybe, oh wait, I live next door. Oh, you know what? That's for FedEx. If you like, I'm looking at the more details. And if, details. It's 150. Oh, if I'd gotten it, like you know, for 150 bucks, I drive to British Columbia and pick it up. Uh, yeah, That's but this crazy. is a really nice system, and it looks like it went for a fair collectible price. I mean, very fair. Yeah, 300 in itself is really good. Something as rare and unique. Okay, I'll say it. eBay rare. Um, and, and unique is this for 300 bucks. Somebody got themselves a really good deal, uh, and it looks like it's in great shape. Um, and I don't know, is that black and white or color screen? It's probably black and white. Black and white. I must have it. Yeah, now, now everybody wants one. You start drawing. <laughs> and it looks like he had two of them. So one of them is probably for parts. Um, so this two, is, I two, guess, comparable two, to the, the Macintosh portable line, you know. Two mm-hmm. things to note about this machine. Uh, the first one being the original design of this was to have it run on 12 C batteries. <laughs> Yeah. Um, completely portable. It had a backlight integrated with it. That backlight, I believe it was fluorescent, which meant that it just sucked down those cells in about five hours. Uh-huh. So imagine replacing your batteries every five hours. I mean, 12 C size. Yep. Well, and when you um, have that many, so you what, couldn't use NICADs. So what they did, rather than redesign the machine, <laughs> was they glued the battery door shut. What? Yeah, they glued it shut. <laughs> and then what'd you do? You, you, did, you didn't use batteries. <laughs> oh, I didn't use batteries. Okay. Uh. No, they made it. So they didn't advertise it as using batteries, and we didn't know about it either until some Atari nut came in one day and he he pointed out, yeah, you see that door? It's glued shut. And I was like, yeah, we were wondering. We tried to open it, and it's like, no, that's where the batteries go. <laughs> <laughs> and it had C batteries in it. <laughs> no, it didn't have any oh. batteries in it. That's uh, the point. They, probably they, was lighter. They yeah. wanted to sell it as a battery-operated laptop, right? Um, but they just couldn't do it. And you know, power again. You have to look at the power curve of machines of the day. Yeah. And there was just first of all, you had no batteries that could that could handle that. We didn't have lithium-ion back then. And NICADs um, would have been too low. You'd lose a quarter volt per battery. Exactly. Well, so sort of along those lines, I, I bought a handheld game system. Uh, in 19, I want to say it was 1990, really early on, 1992, maybe 93, but it's Sega Game Gear. Yes. Yeah, which yeah. was backlit, and it was a pretty nice little color. And then, you know, if it didn't, I don't think the batteries lasted more than two hours in it if you nope. were playing. Same thing with the Atari Lynx. Atari it, Lynx is the same way. Yeah. Because yep. the backlit. It, it just, anytime you had that backlighting, remember, we did, again, the other thing we didn't have was LED backlighting. Mm hmm. So LEDs, you know, they use what I I would guess they use probably a fifth of the like, power that you would have to power up a a whole fluorescent tube in the back and only uh, twenty milliamps. It's very little and right. Yeah. The other the other big thing about the Stacy and the ST in general was it found a lot of usage as a MIDI controller. And for those of you who don't know what MIDI is, it's a musical instrument digital interface. It's yep. what was used to control synthesizers. Um, Stage lighting, uh, you could trigger all kinds of different uh, objects uh, with a single controller. And this was really a big deal. MIDI was a big deal because before this, 
um, you had your lighting controller and it ran on its system and you had this synthesizer uh, and it ran on this system but this other synthesizer it has its own system um, MIDI was a way to tie together the communications of all of these devices that are musical based and the Atari from day one supported MIDI right out of the box and that was huge no one no one else did that and yeah. that was a very very smart thing because this was like the Amiga's video um, yep. this was their niche market this was the thing that they could say oh, we have a serious use for this computer uh, musicians and very famous musicians ended up using the Atari. And correct me if I'm wrong, but they didn't also they didn't really push that enough either. They should have no. jumped on that. They should have like partnered with you know those companies selling the add-ons or yeah. anything else and just. I think you would see from time to time you would see like I, I saw this thing with Fleetwood Mac. Uh, Mick Fleetwood used an ST, and he later used a Stacy on stage. Um, and he had like a vest where, you know, he'd tap the vest in different places and it would play different sounds. It would trigger, uh, different sounds on a sampler. Mm -hmm. Um, that was kind of a big deal back then because nobody was doing that kind of crazy stuff. And uh, I know Atari had some sort of feature with him. Um, but no, I don't, I just think that Atari just didn't really have the money to go all out and advertise. And Jack Tramiel, to be honest, was also very reluctant to, uh, do any kind of advertising unless it was a certain way, and it, it, you know he didn't, he couldn't justify the expense. Plus, you have to look at the limited market. What are we, what are we marketing this to? Well, musicians who can afford uh, an MP, right? Um, they might be able to afford a Mac, which had already made great strides in music by then. So it was, it was a difficult thing. But I will say this: having MIDI built in from day one meant that the operating system and all the programs knew how to talk to it. And that meant that you had you didn't have the confusion that you had on other platforms. Well, do you have this MIDI controller? No, I've got that MIDI controller. And, you know, all oh, the software only works with this MIDI controller. You know, you used to run into that kind of thing a lot on other platforms, particularly the PC. And, you know, here the, you had a portable version of a MIDI controller. And the only other machine uh, the, uh, of its type, there was a Yamaha um, laptop that came out but not i think it was 90 or 91 so this well after this that looked an awful lot like the stacy um and it was and again it was a black and white screen and it was designed specifically to do nothing but midi and it had like eight midi ports on it it was insane hmm. all right what you got next uh let's see where am I? okay next items this is for somebody who wanted to try both I guess the initial releases of the the STs, the a lot of two Atari C five twenty ST and ten forty STs. Um, this one was sold by Goodwill, Seattle Goodwill, and the the, the bid is not all that bad. One hundred four dollars, <laughs> the winning bid. The Goodwill, you don't find a lot of these things at Goodwill anymore because they basically collect it, they move it off to some plant somewhere, and then they sell them. You know, yeah, on only eBay, some of so. them do this, and other ones, yeah. They just dispose of them so uh, the, the shipping's not bad usually goodwill charges an awful lot for shipping because they tack on a, a certain fee and then some flat amount but if somebody wanted uh, to atari sts they don't even really describe if they have this is missing power keys supplies and... <laughs> well i can tell you right now the atari stfm um has your your power supply and your 
floppy drive in case along with the okay. modulator oh. um, because it's the F, uh, it's the uh, FM uh, STFM okay. model so your floppy drives on the right hand side the uh, <laughs> the joystick ports curiously enough are found under the keyboard which is just the <laughs> stupidest place to put them but I guess uh, if you look at the design of the machine there's really no way to do it otherwise but like I said, this would be a later model Atari ST. This would have been like 86-ish, 87. Um, okay. And, but in this know, circumstance, kind of a better one to get a hold of. <laughs> well, yeah. Cheaply, absolutely. huh? Yep. They're filthy, though. Well, the good thing about these, and I know from personal experience having spilled stuff on my computer, <laughs> um, they, te- they come apart very easily. Mm-hmm. And clean them that, that shell is very easy to clean up. You can just stick it in a bathtub or whatever and just soak it there and you know scrub it out and then it comes pretty clean the keys are even pretty easy they're very very smooth and they're pretty easy to clean as well in this this auction i just demonstrate sort of a going price it's not that bad if you wanted to get into it and since it's the uh the fm model um then you know that you probably just have to dig up a power cord as opposed to a power supply right all right yeah we're getting a little short on time here so i'm going to move on we still have uh, seven others to do um the ST is very hard to find on eBay, as as even YouTube probably discovered. So, uh, on other shows, we had to fill in with a little more a broader selection. So we moved down to like hardware, uh, add-on hardware, or software. And I found a piece of interesting add-on hardware, a VT100 terminal emulator cartridge for the 1040 ST. Uh, this one's new, no box. It's still this guy has a bunch of them available he had at least or about 20 he has four <laughs> available still so if you want this you can buy it for 15 bucks five dollar wow. shipping 20 bucks and you have a vt100 terminal emulator for your atari st you know if you're not done doing music with it you can log on to a mainframe and it's released uh, by atari i mean and so yeah they- it's so apparently and and it's sold by somebody named my atari atari sales and service so somebody obviously got these from like a dealer buyout or or whatever uh well it looks like they were an atari dealer yeah they yeah well they still are they still are yeah (laughs) um no box no owner's manual but still if you have an st and you wanted to try to connect it to something i don't know what the atari had for serial emulation or serial use and vt100 let's see that that is pretty much your basic uh serial emulation for like bulletin boards and stuff if i recall or there may have been something slightly different about it. Um, but whatever it is, I'm not an, an ST expert. This gave you the connectivity you needed to you know, connect to terminals or connect the ST as a terminal. Huh. You almost certainly wanted to have the high-resolution monitor. Remember, there were two monitor options for the Atari. You had the color monitor, and then you had the, the, the paper white, black, and white monitor. The black and white monitor would give you a full 640 by 400. The color monitor, too. yeah, and it was awesome. It was really, it was the clearest display I'd ever seen in my life at the time. Um, the uh, the color monitor would only give you 320 by 200 or 640 by 200, which had all the pixels looking like kind of very, you know, stretched out rectangular. Um, so that really wasn't great for uh, doing any serious like you know, uh, composition work, like if you were doing uh, spread uh, spreadsheets were were a big one, but also like word processing. Um, or terminal emulation, because if you needed a full 80 columns, the best way to go was to get the high-resolution monitor. And I always found that a shame that that, that was your 
you know, that was your, your option was no color and great screen or color and well, you get low huh. resolution. So those were your those were your options back then. Well, speaking of color, Chuck, um, yeah, we're going to move this along. Your right, first I, auction has I'll some color that we all are familiar with. Uh, let, me, let me just say something real quick, though. Is that, by the way, so that, that VT100 terminal emulator by the My Atari seller. So uh, look at that, that person's store. So there's a lot of interesting stuff there, like 400 stuff under vintage computing for Atari and, and, and some other ones. Yeah, so, and so anyway, that's a good seller to look at. Okay. Some other stuff, too. But go ahead. So um, it looks like uh, there's still four days left on this one. Um, this is an Atari 520ST uh, that includes the monitor, uh, the, the external floppy, the external uh, power supply, mm. uh, and the mouse. Reasonable uh, shipping. Yeah. Reasonable shipping. And so I mean, it looks like you could get away with this for you know less than 150 bucks. Um, this was the original Atari ST. Um, this was the before they incorporated the floppy drive and power supply inside the box. Um, this was my first computer, my first GUI-based computer. Um, yeah, it is quite yellow. <laughs> that should those keys should yeah. be that yellow. They should be platinum looking. And uh, you know, there's various things you can look up on the internet about how you can clean those keys up. Oh, yeah, um, retrobrite it. Yeah, there's all sorts of different ways you can do it, um, but. Uh, it, it lists as is, so we don't know if this thing even works or not. Uh, but if it did, I mean, it's a, that's, that's a good buy. That's a really good buy. Uh, other than that, I really had a very hard time, and I was surprised. I, I have to be honest with you. I had a very hard time finding uh, any uh, Atari STs at all, even the Megas or the, the TTs. Mm-hmm. I, I just, you know. So what I ended up doing is... Ataris and Commodores sold, believe it or not, they sold far better in Europe than they did here. Um, and, and part of that was psychological, I think. Yeah, I, I, remember, I remember showing an Amiga to somebody once, and it was a business guy, and he said, yeah, I don't need all that game stuff. You know, can you imagine buying a computer today without decent graphics and sound? I mean, even, even business people. Yeah. Can you imagine buying one that didn't have stereo sound, that didn't have full color, that didn't have good resolution? You know, but back then the priority was DOS. <laughs> it was Windows, and so when you'd see something like that, people in Europe were a little more open-minded, and they said, "Well, yeah, but this this thing draws really good pictures, and it makes sound, and it costs half as much as the PC." So their criteria for what a computer could be useful for in Europe was a little different than their perception of computers was a little different than ours here. And so the vast majority of computers that Commodore and Atari sold were in places like Germany, uh, the UK, um, Italy, uh, France even, even though France had their own computer, their own state-sponsored computer, even though the UK had their own state-sponsored computers. um, Nonetheless, Atari and Commodore did a great deal of business. In fact, Commodore uh, initially... When the reason why there are so few Commodore pets in the United States, um, their first computer and arguably the first computer ever that was actually complete and built uh, to be a personal computer um, is because most of those shipments, something like 70% of those shipments ended up going to Europe. And the reason why they went to Europe was because the markup. Uh, Atari, uh, Commodore recognized and Atari recognized that uh, you could charge a little more over in Europe and make much more of a profit, especially if you control the dealers over there. So I went to some German sites, 
um, which was kind of interesting. And I have to use Google Translate here. This is an Atari ST computer. It is an original. Uh, 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 it is a, a ST uh, STFM, so it has the uh, floppy drive and it has the power supply built in. It's looking a little worn, um, but the guy says that it does work. And uh, uh, now he wants uh, what is it? Uh, about seventy-five euro for that. So what does that translate to now? What that's about one about eighty-five dollars US. So yeah. Really, the euro's down that much? Yeah, yeah I, I saw something yesterday that put it close to one to one. So that's what I'm using wow. as a reference. So uh, you know, if you're looking at forty euros to ship it uh, abroad, um, you know you're looking at uh, 120, 130 bucks, maybe 150 bucks at most. Not bad. That's about an average price. Um, and let's see, I got a couple others here. Uh, it's another five. 20 ST down here. No, this one here is a Mega 2. Now, the Mega 2 uh, followed up the ST line, um, and it was awesome. Uh, they had included something called a blitter, which the uh, Amiga had already had, which allowed you to move graphics around very quickly. So, for instance, you could incorporate that mainly in games, but you could use it in other ways, where you would take a portion of graphics and be able to smoothly scroll it around the screen. Um, and the S the mega was, uh, came in, uh, different sizes. Initially it was one uh, megabyte, but then they came out with a two and a four. <coughs> it was user expandable. And the mega two also was, was more of a traditional, uh, style of PC instead of incorporating everything in a keyboard. Um, it actually had kind of a rectangular box, like a pizza box shape to it. Um, and, and there were a number of enhancements that Atari made to the machine, um, are you guys on this? Have you seen this? The what? The auction? The the Mega Two auction? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm on it right yeah. now. Uh huh. So I'm looking at the pricing here. I didn't realize it was a pizza box shape. When I hear Mega, I always thought it was the the same all in one style. But well, they made it so you could fit the monitor on it. That was the okay. whole. Make now, it look like a little sun workstation. Actually, it looks like the link isn't right. Uh, no, there's two links there. It's uh, the one above it. It's actually by itself without a title. Oh, They're saying here I see. So, he says he used everything professionally in the 90s. And see, again, you know, in Europe, uh, again, they didn't have a problem using these things in a professional manner. Um, he still, as he says, it works. Power supply, uh, the, the, the whole thing. It's got a 50 megabyte hard drive, 60 used disks. That's not a simulated screen then? <laughs> no, it looks. Uh, he was designing circuit boards with it. Yeah, it does actually. It's pretty cool. Um, and he wants uh, what sixty-two euros for that? What does he want? Yeah, he was doing PC board design with that. Sure, looks like it. It's a nice looking system. It is a nice looking system. You know, I I, I always thought the STs looked good. I, I I never really had. I don't think you know the, when the Amiga one thousand came out. I thought it kind of looked wonky. Um, it, it looked cheap. These didn't look that cheap. These actually look pretty advanced. And actually, um, this reminds me very much of a machine called the Mindset. It was a PC clone from back in the 80s. Um, and it had a very similar design, like that phone cord coming out of the keyboard, being plugged into the, the pizza box. And uh, uh, it, it, just, it just had a professional look to it, almost like a PC. And I'm sure that was one of the reasons why they did this, was to kind of make it look more like a traditional PC. Um, 
so I don't know what he's doing for shipping here. I haven't seen. That's why I was asking you guys. I I don't see any shipping. Uh, it says here, perhaps no shipping to United States. Please contact ah. the seller. Yeah, there is something with Italy and eBay. Uh, either people don't want to sell one way or the other, but between the United States and Italy, there's there's contention when it comes to shipping. <laughs> Isn't that interesting? Well, okay, and I have one more thing. One more thing. So you have to realize that uh, Atari had, of course, their own port for DMA. They had direct DMA access. That means that you could hook a drive, a hard drive up to it, and it could literally fill the memory itself without the processor having to be involved. Uh, we take that for granted today, but back then that was a really big deal to have something that external that you could literally tie right into the memory of the machine. Uh, that was that was a huge deal. The problem was is that Atari's, uh, Atari's interface often required an external controller to talk to it. So it was an added expense. Um, what they really should have done if they cared would have been to include a SCSI controller instead. But I think the reason why Atari did that was because more than just hard drives could be hooked up to this thing. Mm-hmm. And so they needed an interface that would, you know, th- that would access memory directly regardless of whether it was used for a hard drive or not. This board that we're looking at on eBay right now uh, was made by a company called ICD, which they produced a great deal of the peripheral cards for both the Amiga and the Atari. And this added a real-time clock, which uh, machines, the STs, did not have initially, and it added a SCSI controller uh, so that you could plug this thing in and you could literally plug uh, your SCSI hard drives directly into it. Or scanners. That was another thing you could use with it. Which was a pretty big deal at the time. It really was. And the fact that, I mean, SCSI was one of those things where it was an expensive standard, but it was a standard. And it was a standard that was flexible and usable for multiple devices. And, uh, you know, there's all sorts of disadvantages to it. We can look at it today and go, oh, it's expensive and you had to terminate it. Yeah. But... Back then, it really was a professional standard. And in fact, if you looked at most of the high-end machines, that's all they were using. No, Macintosh used. Right. And even even today, Windows recognizes IDE and recognizes SATA, but internally, it still calls them SCSI. Huh. Yeah, on the Mac on the Mac platforms, (coughs) SCSI was certainly. had a lot to do with the ultimate success of the Macintosh. Right. You know, it needed that absolutely to, you know, for the desktop publishing revolution to have happened and absolutely. hook a laser writer up to it and so on. Very that's, interesting. That wasn't that's sold. That's all I got today. Was that, that wasn't, this right. one comes with a free battery. Yeah. It wasn't <laughs> sold by, by Atari. See, and these are some things where Atari, you know, they probably should have been helping companies like this out you know, selling them through their own catalog or just what, you know, whatever type of, you know, interesting marketing things to help prop their own products up. Again, I think Tremil spent something like $23 million to buy Atari. He didn't have a whole lot of money by then. I mean, he had money, but I, I, I think, you know, his main push was that he wanted his sons to run the company. This is one of the reasons why he left Commodore because they wouldn't let him do that. Irving wouldn't let him do that. <laughs> and uh, it, as far as expense, and as far as how much money we're talking about uh, that he might have had, I mean, he, he had to design an entire 
machine and rebuild a company from scratch. Um, I just don't think he had the money. I don't think he had the money to really push things, you know, as far as he did, especially in Commodore 64's glory days where their commercials were just crushing the competition. Uh, they had some arguably the best commercials of the 80s. I demand nepotism or I'm leaving the company. Yeah, it sounds <laughs> that was that was apparently the final discussion he had in the boardroom um, before he left. Hmm. It was his intention to have his three sons run different portions of the company, and Irving wasn't having it. That's kind of interesting. Yeah. All right, so I've got three auctions myself, and uh, we'll go into those quickly. We're yeah, we're just a little over an hour, so we're doing okay. Not too bad. Having a special guest, so this one is, says Atari. Fi- and, th- and this is a live auction, so Atari. Yeah, you know, I'm this close to hit and buy it now. Well, and actually, <laughs> my first two are from the same seller. It turned out, and um, and yeah, these seem to be really good deals. So this is an Atari 520 ST, not M, with one it's meg upgrade, a- and real time clock with a question mark. Toss 1.0, mostly tested. So it's 109.99. Buy it now. It's sixteen dollars. 13 cents shipping to me in the Atlanta area out of Virginia. So that's, it should be reasonable anywhere. And, um, for me. and it's shown working and the person opened up the case and, um, look inside that case. Do you see that long line of chips there? Yeah. The one that has, has yeah. like four capacitors on it. That's the upgrade, that's the, right? That's the one meg upgrade. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So a very nice system, um, you know, very clean. I mean, other than the yellow keys. The yellow keys, that's just the nature of that one, that system. Yeah. It's, this is just the computer, no monitor. Oh, is it no monitor? Yeah. Ah. Uh, welcome to another of the old Game Hunters neat stuff, computer items. <laughs> so, and a mostly tested Atari 520ST. Oh, but I wonder why, yeah, if, obviously, yeah, you stick a, the monitor in there, it's worth a lot more, and then also shipping would have to go way up. But, um... Hmm, that is interesting without the monitor. So let's look at the second one. So that's before, a five- you go, before you yeah. get to the second one, notice sure. one other thing about this one. The real time clock is that huge <laughs> unprotected board sitting sticking out of the cartridge port. Is it really? Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> that's what it is. That's funny. So I don't know if it does anything else, but that, that is that is the real time clock. I remember that. It was a, well, I don't know what happened to the cartridge. interesting. It's a conversation piece. So yeah, it does something else. Huh. Oh yeah, I mean I see that. So so one thing one thing that you I don't know what they did with later STs, but in the older STs you could literally pop out the the ROM chips and put in new ones if you wanted to. And if you wanted to, you could actually order the, you know, 1.0, 1.1, 1.2. in later years they have developed open source operating systems for the ST. And uh, now, the way most of them work, although other people have gotten them burned around, is you uh, you have to have a great deal of memory to make this work, obviously. But the way it works is a computer. And by the way, STs boot up in about three seconds. You turn mm-hmm. it on and wait a few seconds and it's up. Um, at least if you have the ROMs. If you're booting from floppy, it's significantly longer. Um, but they have a way now that you can, you can boot an operating system that replaces GEM. And it replaces it with a true multitasking system. Remember, the ST was like the Mac in that it wasn't a true multitasking system. You could right. do one thing at a time. It so wasn't it was preemptive, it was called. It, multitasking. Correct. Correct. It was single single task only. Like so these new, operating, these new operating systems are offering TOS compatibility. One of them is called Magic, I believe. Um, it offers TOS compatibility at the same time that it also offers uh, – 
multitasking. How well that works, I don't know. I've been reading various reports. I tried to make it work last night. I wanted to see uh, if if it would work through emulation. I, it's just too much to set up. But the point is, is that um, there's still a community, a developer community out there for this. It's still people creating stuff for the SD, and that's just awesome. So um, th- my second pick turned out to be the same seller, and this seller, R- RB Game Hunter, by the way, has really good feedback. It looks like or twelve thousand. Anyway, it's got like sixteen hundred items on eBay. A lot of Atari stuff and other gaming stuff. So another interesting seller to maybe look at their store. But the second item is um, an Atari ten forty STF, no modulator with TOS one mostly tested. So does that mean it doesn't need one, or just that it's not coming with one? It's not coming with one. So it's not one. built in. Okay, so uh, and I'm guessing it doesn't come with a display either. Maybe I missed that. Yeah, it's uh, the computer only. Yeah, so the guy wants to, or, or gal, <laughs> wants to keep the display. But another good, clean, one hundred and thirty nine ninety nine byte now, very reasonable shipping. You know, a clean, complete, you know, tested system. So, um, well, keep in mind, he's also saying no monitor, but he says no external disk drive, power cord, or mouse is included. Oh, on that. Oh, <laughs> I see. Showing, but it has just showing that it works. Oh, was that the case of the other one too? Maybe I missed that. Well, this That's one has an question. internal disk drive, and I know if I ever got one without one, I have uh, an Atari ST disk drive sitting in, in a box somewhere that I can't even test. Yeah, uh, he's saying that the other one was the same way. Okay. No I, supply, disk drive, or mouse. Ah, I didn't read so it so just, completely. It still it gives us an indicator, indicator of the market value of these things. Yeah. Uh, well, I don't know. This isn't sold, so we don't know until somebody actually buys it that they <laughs> pay this price. And lastly, I chose, I thought would be interesting to look at, um, and this is out of the UK. It's a UK magazine. Um, so a, uh, and there's, there's some other ones on eBay uh, here. Is it, it's out of the UK, isn't it? I'm looking. Yeah. So oh, this, yes. this is a, uh, a lot of ST format magazine, UK Atari which is, magazine. Which is a sister publication to Amiga format, by the way. Mm-hmm. So this is from 94, 96 issues, kind of later in its run. Um, but you could also look at the seller and I think they have a few other ones or there's others on eBay you can look at, but, um, so there you go. So, uh, about 10 pounds, uh, Ooh, $26 shipping though, but you know, 30, 40 bucks, you could get 10, 10 copies of this and have and a nice little set. been archived on archive.org yet. Yeah. I think, I think they're on, uh, Kevin Savitz's uh, site where he's okay. archived a lot of magazines. I'm not See, mistaken. the magazines are the best things in the world. I, I love... They really were, especially the up, UK ones. Well, just computer magazines in general from the time. I love opening up and reading, you know, handling the magazine. But yeah, it, personally, I kind of outgrew that. I have boxes and boxes of Compute Gazette magazines that I'm slowly selling off because I can find them online and I can read them. Yeah, and, and I agree with you. And I think that's the, that's the sort of balance there, the caveat, because I've gotten rid of a lot of stuff over the years. And and I and I have no problem looking at magazines online, and it's awesome to be able to, to get those. But on the other hand, I I still like to grab a magazine, a physical Smell, one, every so often. Feel the reader service card, that kind of stuff. Yeah, so yeah. I've like near like I'm looking at my bookshelf, and so you know I've got like maybe I don't know twenty five old Mac magazines, maybe a dozen bytes, and my Info sixty fours, and some PC, another you know I maybe still own fifty magazines, which you know isn't a lot, but it's a nice sampling across. The stuff, thing about but I don't have like format, shelves of them. The format magazines from the UK and other magazines like it, uh, in addition to their cover discs, um, the, they felt more substantial. They were thicker pages. Yeah, they were. 
It was like, and if you look at them, you can see just the co- from the cover. It, it's like they threw up in tele- Technicolor. They, they, yeah. every page was just jam packed full of, uh, you know, huge screenshots and, um, you know, just outrageous advertising. And it was just, it was a really very vibrant way of uh, demonstrating people's love for these machines. Um, we would get the European machines in for. Uh, uh, I know that my friend got them in for the ST, and later when I worked for the Amiga dealer, we got the uh, Amiga formats in um, because they just had so much, and the discs were jam-packed full of stuff, too, and not just garbage. I mean, they, there was some really useful stuff uh, from time to time. I remember I got a disc formatter off of uh, uh, one of these ST formats, and it was just it was just amazing. It was just a little utility uh, that would help you format a disc for a certain format that would store just a little extra on the extra tracks. You know, they used to do that um, back in the old days when you could mess with the drive controller at the hardware level and you could get, you know, it, w- it was a totally incompatible format, but you could fit like an extra, I don't know, 100K on it or whatever. And, and it was just nifty. I mean, it was just, it was, uh, plus having, having, seeing most of the, particularly game software was coming from Europe first. Um, you know, this gave you kind of a preview of what was on the way. And, um, oops, I lost my link there, but that's it. Yeah. Looking around everything, you hit the wrong stuff with that single button mouse of yours. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That went away a long time ago. So how about some feedback, Jeff? Yeah. I just wanted to mention what they have to there, say. There still is a lot of Atari stuff, Atari ST stuff out there. It's just, you know, finding it, but. Uh, considering that there's you know people still supporting the hardware, hopefully we'll, we'll begin to see more of it in a collector's realm. Eventually, I'll add it to my collector's list, but I just don't have a bunch of Atari ST need right now. Um, but anyway, uh, moving on, feedback. We did get feedback from the last show, and um, yeah, so stop. You wrote to us before Norbert <laughs> Landsteiner. Um, he, it's a, it's a long email, so I'm not going to repeat it. I just summarized it a little bit. Um, Basically, he he worked along with the last show's critique. Uh, David and Alan and, and and I were critiquing that uh, Wikipedia entry about Lisa Sales being poor. Uh-huh. So what he was able to do, he did some research. Uh, he, he provides a copy of the 1980 marketing requirements document on the on the Lisa from archive.org. And he also put the Lisa's sales and marketing binder from June 1983 that he got from MacMothership.com. And huh. uh, long story short, or to sum, sum it up, it basically proves that there were 45, about 45,000 units sold in the first two years of the Lisa and another near 42,000 per year for the next six years afterwards. So that the original argument was that it didn't sell more than about 100,000 units. Hmm. Which, now, which whether or not that's poor or not, it certainly yeah, was below right. what they, you know, it, they didn't sell what they manufactured and that's not good. And it certainly didn't sell as well as they expected it to. And, and lots of other machines outsold it, but does that necessarily mean it sold poorly? It just well, depends. Did it, sell, on, did it sell poorly in relation to something like say the Apple two in 1980? Oh yeah. So oh yeah. Big time. Tons. Right. So if you're so looking they, at a million machines of Apple twos a year or more, Oh well, yeah. This is the know, Apple 45,000. Right. Apple right. Lisa. But no, I know that. But what I'm saying huh. is, is that if you're if you're Apple, your bread and butter at that time was still the Apple II, and That's if true. you're selling in the millions, 
you know, or at least in, in that area. Uh, oh yeah, it sold poor. It did sell the Apple. Here's the thing that a lot of people don't even get at Apple is so the Macintosh ultimately saved their 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 bottoms, right? So it wasn't even until, and off the top of my head, remembering it wasn't even until 1988 that Macintosh sales even approached Apple II sales. Right, and it was that was the turning point where finally, maybe 88, 89, where Mac sales just started exceeding Apple II sales. But the company depended on Apple II sales well into the early 90s, you know, like to survive. So. Anyway, it was just us, Jeff and I, and then with Adam on the show for the Macintosh, just, you know, Wikipedia doesn't always, they have quotes there. Oh, this and that, or what about stuff? It's not always, I don't know, it's debatable. Right. <laughs> yeah, and, and then also for, you know, disclosure, he, he also thanked me for correcting the link to the uh, Lisa show's audio because I forgot to change that in the, you know, for those who oh yeah website to listen to the audio in line, uh, it was still pointing to, I think, show five. Yeah, we got a lot of hate mail. Let me read one of yeah, those. Yeah, I know. I got that. <laughs> That's the reason why the snow is here over my house today. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I'm about to go out there with a the snowblower after this. I'm about to go out there with the snow out there. Send them out. It's See? been snowing fairly uh, light but steadily since I've been on the show. And yeah, you got what, about half inch? Yeah, I think we added probably. three or four inches just during the recording of this. Mm-hmm. But I saw. I see this. It looks like the sun's going to come out now maybe and start melting some of it. Yeah, and it's barely sticking. You know, it is sticking a little bit, but for instance, it's not, there's not snow covered yards yet because it, it melts and it's, you know, not that heavy. I got no weather on standby on my radio here. We're, we're all listening. Yeah. Oh, yeah, we are. <laughs> yeah. I'll let it play, but we're, we're running low on time. Uh, but that's an important thing to listen to right now because they'll, they'll give you some changes in, in the uh, weather. So that's it, I guess, for this show. Um, so next show will be eBay show eight and it'll be released around Friday. We tried to release them on Friday. We had some things going on. So why it's going to be released today on Saturday, um, but Friday, February 5th, and we're going to be continuing our coverage of the GUI 32 bit computers with the Commodore Amiga series. And, and Chuck, I think you're going to join us for that show too, yeah, right? I would love to join you guys for that because I probably know more about the Amiga than I do the ST. The ST, I own the ST for about two and a half, three years. And after that, I was all Amiga. I was gung-ho Amiga until 1994 when Commodore folded. Oh, okay. Well, that would be interesting. So so we'll see you again. Um, awesome. So, everyone, you can find all of our show notes on historyofpersonalcomputing.com. You can send feedback to feedback at historyofpersonalcomputing.com. And please let us hear from you. We'd really love to hear from more of our listeners for uh, you know, positive feedback as well as constructive criticism. Um, and feel free to do it by email or send us audio recording. It would be great. We could play it then. Um, also, we'd love to have any pictures, especially old ones. Uh, and, you know, we haven't really received too many of those. And that was part of our goals to kind of build a little showcase of that on, on our Facebook page. So, hey, we're still asking for it. Um, also, please tell someone about us and, or write an, a review on iTunes. Just help spread the word. We've been getting lots of uh, new likes at the Facebook, regular likes, I guess, building yes, up. Facebook at, and some Twitter followers. Yeah, and Twitter's growing, you know. So, and retweeters. Um, Hey, you were you were talking about pictures. I will try. I, I'm, I can't promise. Oh, if you got any, that'd be great. But I will try to dig up some pictures of the old Commodore factory from the inside. That would be awesome. Oh, that'd be good. Uh, I'll, I'll see if I can find great. them. I t- I have a roll of them sitting around here, but I just moved uh, last year, and I still got stuff in boxes. So <laughs> I mean, ten years ago, and I'm the same it. way. <laughs> and correct me if I'm wrong. Isn't there some videos up on YouTube where uh, the deathbed vigil? 
the deathbed that you yeah, yeah. Where, where it's like people being interviewed and talking inside Commodores. And we'll certainly have that link in the next that, show. That That's may be the really most good. bitter. That might be the most bitter computer video I've ever seen in my life. It's bitter and bittersweet at the same time. Yeah, but you know, you had all these engineers that were just brilliant, absolutely brilliant. Yeah, Commodore was so inept. Uh, well, we can do. We'll get into that next time. <laughs> so, really, again, that's it for today's show. Just remember, let the buyer beware or caveat emptor, and take care of your old computers. Bye, guys. Bye, bye. Hey, thanks. Check my feedback, A plus plus. They all say they love me on eBay. Gonna buy a slightly damaged skull.